Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, all the way through the end of the chapter. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, hear now the reading of God's word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard these, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town cleric had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can justify this commotion. And when he has said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This is our third time in Acts 19. And the anchor for this three-part study has been verse 20. Verse 20 of this chapter, which says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily, The surrounding context provides vivid illustrations of how the word of the Lord did this in Ephesus. First, 
we saw how it prevailed over doctrinal immaturity in verses 1 through 7. After that, we saw how the word prevailed over stubborn unbelief in verses 8 and 10. And last week, we saw how the word of the Lord prevailed also over occult forces in that many were freed from their enslavement to magic arts. And this was in verses 11 through 19. This morning, we will see the word of the Lord prevailing over a yet fourth obstacle. And this time is the obstacle of cultural idolatry. Cultural idolatry. The critical thing to do as we begin this morning is to define our terms. The first question that I have for you is this. What is culture? What is culture? Ephesus had a culture. Moreover, we all live in a culture. Furthermore, you have a personal culture. Your family has a culture. This church has a culture. All communities have a culture. This is why defining the word culture can be somewhat difficult. It would be like asking a fish to define what it means to be wet. It would be impossible for the fish to do that, first and foremost, because wetness is all they know. Everything they do is in wetness. Likewise, culture is a very elusive, elusive concept because culture, in an ultimate sense, is simply what we do, is how we live, is the air we breathe. So a definition of culture is difficult. The experience of culture, however, is inevitable. So let's attempt a definition. If you're following the notes, let's attempt a definition. Herbert Schlossberg, in his book, Idols for Destruction, seeks to define culture in this way, a network of shared beliefs. Culture is a network of shared beliefs. Much could, we, could be said about that definition, but I just want to point out one word in that definition. Beliefs. Beliefs. A network of shared beliefs, meaning culture flows from within and it goes outward. So we could define culture in a broad way this way. Culture is the outward manifestation Culture is the outward manifestation of inward convictions shared by a group of people. Now, let's take this to Ephesus. Ephesus looked the way that it did because the people of Ephesus believed Artemis to be a goddess. Ephesus looked the way it did because the people of Ephesus believed Artemis to be a goddess. They shared a core Belief, according to one commentator, quote, the influence of this goddess, Artemis, and the cult attached to her permeated every area of life for those who lived in the city of Ephesus. The temple was the major banking center for the city. Her image adorned the coinage. A month of the year was named after her. Olympic-style games were held in her honor. And she was trusted as the guardian and protector of the city. Moreover, her relationship to the city could best be described as a covenant bond. And thus, she was often called Artemis of the 
Ephesians, end quote. And that's precisely what we see in verses 28 and 34. She was called, she was considered to be Artemis of the Ephesians. Therefore, think about this, their economy, their social structures, their political institutions, etc., all of them looked like external representations of deep-rooted beliefs regarding Artemis. Artemis was the reference point for how they lived in Ephesus. Their inward convictions were projected outwardly. Culture is then inward religion externalized. Sounds a lot like Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, doesn't it? What does Proverbs 4.23 says? Keep your what? Heart with all vigilance. For from it flow what? The springs of life. In a biblical sense then, culture is heart convictions interacting with and affecting the outside world. Why is June Pride Month for so many people? It's heart convictions interacting with the outside world. Clearly, the heart, this invisible inward side of us, is the citadel of man. It controls everything going out. This naturally brings us to our second and central term, which we must define. So here's the second question. What is idolatry? What is idolatry? Let's begin with its definition. Since from the heart flow the springs or the issues of life, then idolatry in its most basic and broadest definition is this. Poisoned hearts producing poison streams. Poisoned hearts producing poison streams. Charles, Charles Bridges says, quote, if the citadel be taken, the whole town must surrender. If the heart be seized, the whole man, affections, desires, motives, pursuits, all will be yielded up. The physical heart is the vital part of the body. A wound there is instant death. Thus, says Bridges, spiritually as well as naturally, out of the heart out are the issues of life. It is the vital spring of the soul, the fountain of actions. And as is the fountain, so must be the streams, end quote. Or to give a, a different analogy, the heart is to the culture what the tea bag is to the water. The heart is to the culture what the tea bag is to the water. The internal contents of the tea bag eventually determine the color of the water. Therefore, if a culture is idolatrous, it is only because the heart of its people are making it so. The worship of Artemis in Ephesus was a poisoned stream coming straight out of the poisoned heart of its citizens. The heart was made to worship the one true God. Idolatry is the corruption of that original design, and it comes from the heart. This gives us an immediate insight. Immediate insight. Have you heard of the so-called culture wars? They're all over the place. Well, what's the immediate insight? 
The so-called culture wars are, therefore, a war for the heart of man. That's what we're fighting for, the hearts of man, the hearts of man. Whether in first century Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, or 21st century Glen Rose, India, or San Francisco, the war is always about the heart. For from it flow what? Everything else. Everything else. We see this in the ministry of Paul. For instance, when Paul went to Athens, he saw the city was full of what? Idols. Yet how many of those idols did Paul destroy? None of them. None of them. In Ephesus, neither Paul nor his companions made any attempt to destroy the temple of Artemis. In fact, if you look at verses 35 through 41 of our passage, this becomes clear. The treasurer of the temple of Artemis, the clerk, publicly cleared Paul's companions of any wrongdoing. We read that in verse 37. He says that they were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of Artemis. Paul knew that destroying the idols in Athens or attacking the temple in Ephesus would accomplish nothing. Thus confirming the real issue of idolatry. In Psalm 44, verse 20 and 21, the sons of Korah say, If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign god or an idol, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Idolatry, then, is when the heart goes after, worships, pursues, or desires false gods, by which I mean anything in the created order as opposed to the creator himself. As Schlossberg says in his book, idolatry is, quote, any substitution of what is created for the creator, end quote. We will develop that a bit more as we look for application at the end. For now, let us ask the following question. Where did idolatry come from? Let's consider its origin. Its origin. Eden. The garden. Eden. What we see in Ephesus and the worship of Artemis has its roots in the beginning of all things. The human heart became poisoned through Adam and Eve. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And as you do, let me just remind you of how critical, how critical Genesis chapter 3 is for understanding our times. Genesis chapter 3 will never lose its relevancy. It is truly inescapable. After God commanded the man and his wife not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, along with the warning of death in case of disobedience, the serpent said in verses 4 and 5, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing what? Good and evil. The point of those words was to tempt Eve, listen to this, to create the very first idol. What was that idol? The idol of creaturely independence from God. The idol of creaturely autonomy. You know what autonomy is? Auto, self, nomi, 
law, self-law, the idol of human autonomy. Think about it. Think about it. What does it mean that Eve will know good and evil? Why would Satan say to Eve, you will know good and evil? First of all, that was a lie, wasn't it? Eve already knew good and evil. What was good? Eat of any tree. What was evil? Eat of the one tree. In the Garden of Eden, God had already defined good and evil for Adam and Eve. God's word was the standard of truth for them. Adam and Eve, eat of any tree, that's good. If you eat of this one, that's bad. That's good and evil. God had already determined that. So the temptation from Satan was this, Eve, act as if you were God. Meaning, stop depending on God to tell you what's good and what's evil. Choose for yourself. Choose for yourself. Idolatry began when humans breached the creator-creature distinction. Christopher Wright says that, quote, Therein lies the root of all other forms of idolatry. We deify our own capacities and thereby make gods of ourselves and our choices and all their implications. At the root, then, idolatry, listen to this, is human rejection of the goodness of God and the finality of God's moral authority, end quote. That's the origin of idolatry. Let's look now at its nature. Its nature. What is the nature of idolatry? One word, demonic. Demonic. The Bible makes it quite clear that behind the act of idolatry, there are demons. Demons. This should not surprise us given the fact that behind the very first act of idolatry, who was behind the first act of idolatry? Satan himself. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is book number five in all of the Bible. In this passage, Moses celebrates God's goodness to Israel on the one hand and laments Israel's corruption on the other. Even though the the Lord was good to Israel and he chose them over all the nations of the world to be his own possession, Israel constantly forgot the true God and went after idols, the gods of other nations. And so we read, beginning in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32, But Jeshurun, that's a term of endearment for Israel. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he, meaning Israel, forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with what? Strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to what? Demons that were not gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods they had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. Did you hear that? Israel became idolatrous, and so they worshipped foreign gods, the gods of the nations surrounding them, the gods of other nations. But in reality, those gods were not gods. Instead, they were demons. 
We could, we could spend weeks talking about how this happened, but we won't do that. Likewise, in Psalm chapter 106, verses 34 through 37, we read of how Israel failed in their conquest of the land of Cana. And it says this, they did not destroy the peoples. Remember, that was their sin. They went into the land. They didn't want to destroy the peoples. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They wanted to imitate the nations, the pagan nations. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The Apostle Paul, being in full agreement with this, tells the Corinthians that whatever is sacrificed to idols is in reality sacrificed to what? Demons, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Therefore, let me ask you this, who is Artemis? And what is her, te her temple in Ephesus? Nothing. Nothing. Demetrius, the silversmith who made shrines of Artemis and made good money from that business, he got the message. His main complaint against Paul is found in Acts 19, verse 26, which is the heart of our passage. What did he say? Consider what he said. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Precisely, Demetrius. Precisely the point. Not only is Artemis not a goddess, but you're worshiping demons. Evil spirits who are deceptive and seeking worship for themselves, as Satan himself did in the desert and told Jesus to bow down before him and worship him. Now, let me clarify what I am not saying. I am not saying that the statue of Artemis or that the temple of Artemis are in and of themselves demons or that those things were indwelled by demons. I repeat, idols are nothing more than matter. They have no real existence. What I am saying is that behind this explicit idolatry, there are demons who inspire the false worship of false gods. Idolatry is demon-inspired false worship. Demon-inspired false worship, just like Satan did in the garden. Now, let me begin to connect some important dots at this point. Please pay attention to this. Here, we're, we're connecting dots. The worship of a people... The worship of a people will determine how they live because we always become like the object of our worship. I'm going to repeat that. The worship of a people will determine how they live because we always become like the object of our worship. Psalm 115 verse 8 says about idols of silver and gold that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Show me the true character of a person, and I will show you what they worship. Show me the true character of a person, and I will show you what they worship. God called Israel a stiff-necked people right after they made what? The golden calf, which means that they were stubborn like the calf they worshipped. They were becoming like the object of their worship. Worship, listen to this, worship is the most 
powerful thing in the world because worship shapes your life. You will become like the thing you worship, like the object of your worship. You will resemble the object of your worship. And worship, you will. No one in here can say, ah, that doesn't apply to me. I don't worship anything. No, no, no. Worship, you will. Either the Lord Jesus or an idol, a false god. But do you see what I did there? There's nothing in between. There's nothing in between. The citizens of Ephesus are a case in point. Let's consider now the effects of idolatry. The effects of idolatry. Notice what the Ephesians looked like. Now remember, we become like the object of our worship. Right? Yes? Amen? Thank you. Thank you. There are many words to describe the Ephesians, but I will limit myself to four. Here's number one. Fear. Fear. Notice what Demetrius says in verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. Due to their idolatry, the Ephesians were a people of fear. Why? Because demons are fearful. Demons are fearful. James 2.19 says that demons tremble at the thought of God. They think of him as one God and they tremble. In the gospel, you see demons in, in constant fear of Jesus. That's their way of life. They fear the truth. They fear, fear the God of truth. And everything that exposes their lies, they fear. Likewise, the Ephesians who worshipped worthless idols were a fearful people because they were becoming like the objects of their worship. In contrast, the true God calls us to what? Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Over and over, we're told to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. It is one of the most often repeated phrases in all of the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Be courageous. Be strong. Why? Because our God is a rock, unlike worthless idols. Our God is a rock. The true God is never at risk of being demoted or removed from his throne. Our God is in the heavens, says Psalm 115, verse 3. He does all that he pleases. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, Psalm 24, verse 8. Jesus is above every ruler, above every authority, and above every power. He is not nervous. He is not anxious. He is not worried about losing his place of dominion. He has been given all authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. Therefore, we Christians do not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Notice the fourfold intensity of that passage. Though this, though this, though that, though this, we will not fear, come what may. 
The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46. Let me ask you this. Are you fearful? Do you get what I'm asking? Are you fearful? Then I have to ask you this. Then what do you worship? If you worship the true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. Why should we be a people of power, love, and self-control? Because we worship the true God and we must resemble the God we worship. So, do not be afraid. Number two, anger. Anger. An idolatrous people is an angry people. Do you see any anger today? Huh. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. See the possibility of their goddess being defeated. Right? They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The rise of anger in a culture is indicative of its depths of idolatry. When you mess with people's idols, they get angry. The riot in Ephesus was the voice of idolatry. The riot in Ephesus was the voice of idolatry. Let me put it this way. Whenever certain biblical truths, listen to this, don't miss this. Then you can fall asleep. Not now. The, whenever certain biblical truths are met with rage or anger, you know you're dealing with some form of idolatry. And the greater the rage, the deeper the idolatry. So as you look at the current social, political, and moral landscape of our society, consider this question. What are some of the biblical truths that today are being met with the highest degree of resistance and rage? That's a very penetrating question. As you find the answer, you begin to uncover the idols of our age. What are we called to do and to be as Christians? Paul says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Because if we follow and worship the Lord Jesus, we must become like him. Let us put anger away. Number three. Corruption. Corruption. What is the first word? Fear, that's right. Second, anger. Now, corruption. Idolatry is always accompanied by corrupted motives. Notice what Demetrius says to his fellow workers at the beginning of his speech in verse 25. What was his concern? Man, you know that from this business we have our what? Our wealth. Verse 27, there's danger that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. Idolatry goes hand in hand with ulterior motives. It is never pure. In this case, it was greed. It was not so much about the worshiping of Artemis as much as it was about making money. You see, idolatry is always motivated by sinful interests. It can be money. It can be pleasure. It can be pride, etc. Idolatry always turns things upside down in that it serves the creature rather than the creator. What idols 
are producing the most amounts of money today? I'm going to leave that question with you. That's a big question. There's always corruption behind idolatry. The fourth and last word to describe the Ephesians would be confusion. Confusion. Do you see any confusion in our society? Verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. You see, the Ephesians were fine with Artemis plus approximately 50 other small deities, idols. But when Paul comes in preaching Jesus as the only true Lord of heaven and earth, they become confused. Idolatry breeds confusion. True faith breeds order because the true God is not a God of confusion, but of order. When we live by faith as creatures of the one true God, life is orderly, not confusing. Let me just put it straight to you. Two genders is not confusing. It's order. It is order. It is God-given order. Marriage between one man and one woman is not confusing. It is God-given order. But when idolatry creeps in, everything becomes confusing. So let's look at its reversal. How do we um, go the opposite direction? Well, we worship in spirit and truth. This is the distinguishing mark of the true people of God. The reversal of idolatry begins with proper thoughts about God. I'm going to summarize for you Deuteronomy chapter 4. You know what? Actually, we have time. Let's go there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. At least I have time. <laughs> That's just a joke, but it's true. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. So we're just going to read one section, and I'm going, to lead you, I'm going to let you read the rest later on. I just want to begin this section. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, Moses told Israel, verse 15, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly, and then you can read the rest, but let me summarize it to you. Beware, lest you attempt to worship God as if he had creaturely form. That's the summary of that text. Everything he says afterwards. Beware. Don't even try. Don't attempt to worship me as if I had creaturely form. I don't. You have never seen any form. Instead, the Lord Jesus instructs us by saying, The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23 and 24. We worship then by... Can anybody guess this word? Yes. We worship by faith, which by necessity means not by sight. 
that is true worship. So how do we call people back to true worship of the true God in our day? How do we fight idolatry? Well, here we finish with this final point. Here's our idol-smashing strategy. Here's our idol-smashing strategy. Let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We obviously, we are no longer in Ephesus facing a giant temple dedicated to a false goddess named Artemis. But are we still in the business of smashing idols? Well, yes, we certainly are. What are those idols? Let's read. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What idols are we to smash today? The idols of our present culture exist primarily in the realm of thought, not in the realm of matter. We are not dealing with silver and gold, but with arguments and lofty opinions. Those are the idols of our age. But if you want a name for the idol of our age, let's call it humanism. Let's call it humanism. You could call it secularism if you want it. That's the idol. That's the idol that we're smashing today. By that, by humanism, I mean this, the sinful Satan-inspired lofty opinion that seeks to dethrone the one true God and put man in his place. As the second humanist manifesto says, quote, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves, end quote. Let me be clear, please don't miss this. Humanism, secularism is not the absence of religion. It is not the absence of religion. Rather, humanism is religion with man as the object of its worship. And as I said a few moments ago, the battles being fought today are battles for the heart of man, and they are always religious in nature. These are the real worship battles. Take, for instance, the battle raging hot over abortion. Schlossberg, again, is extremely insightful at this point in his book. Listen carefully to what he says. I'm going to quote. What is widely regarded as a struggle between the religious and the secular is really a struggle between religions. The current strife over such issues as abortion is perfectly in order because it is an attempt by both sides to establish a rule of order in accordance with basic religious precepts. Man is autonomous ruler of himself, 
able to define right and wrong and frame statutes according to whatever he defines as just, or else man is created and sustained by a holy and just God who declares on matters of right and wrong in form of law. Both are religious views held by faith. In the most basic sense, there is no such thing as a secular culture. Religious warfare exists, and inevitably so, end quote. Given this fact, how do we fight this battle? Here's our weapon. The only weapon we have, the gospel. The gospel. Why the gospel? Only the gospel can change the heart. And if the gospel can change the heart, then the gospel can change what? The streams of life. The gospel can change everything else. Jesus died to redeem us from our idolatry and to bring us to the true God through his own blood. And as Lord of all, Jesus calls us to repent and believe in his name. But as we speak and as we live in the power of the gospel, let me remind you of the words of verse 23 of Acts 19. Let me just remind you. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of this reality. What words? Verse 23. No little what? Disturbance concerning the way. The way here means Christianity. Christianity, the gospel, disturbed Ephesus. You see, when the saltiness of the gospel of Jesus is sprinkled over the open wound of cultural idolatry, it produces a sting. It disturbs. It elicits a reaction. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that in this battle for the hearts and souls of men, as we seek to honor the Lord Jesus in our culture, things will get disturbed. In fact, do not be surprised if disturbance finds you. But one thing is becoming increasingly real. You cannot be a friend of Jesus while seeking to remain a friend of the world. The Christians living in the first century, they lived faithfully and they accepted the consequences. We must be willing and glad to do the same. So let us begin with our own families. Let us tell our children and our grandchildren that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again for our justification. That in him we are free from condemnation and that we're free to offer true worship to the true God. And that he's Lord of both heaven and earth. And there's no other king, no other Lord, no other God. Let us do so faithfully. Now let us pray together. Lord, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Help us to be like him in our determination to see your name known and exalted in all the earth, just as he sought to take your name to Rome itself, the very capital of the empire. Likewise, we ask that you help us not to be intimidated by or afraid of the darkness around us. Rather, may we be overwhelmed by the glory and the worthiness of Jesus. So we remember the words of Psalm 72, and together with Solomon, we say of you, Lord Jesus, may you have dominion from sea to sea, 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before you, Lord, and may your enemies lick the dust. May all kings fall down before you, and may all nations serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.